want to welcome everyone here today to a video feature for the Legacy of John Williams website. Uh, since I am a very huge admirer of some of our fellow podcasters around the web, and the World Wide Web, uh, I thought that it could be a great idea to have here uh, a couple of people who I admire a lot, uh, who are doing great work in terms of film music education and film music literature through our podcasts. Uh, so I have here with me today uh, the Brueggemann brothers, William Brueggemann. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much. This is an absolute pleasure. I know I speak for both my brother and I when I say uh, the feeling of respect is absolutely mutual. The legacy of John Williams is just a delightful podcast and resource for any of us fans of just that, the legacy of the incredible and immortal John Williams. Here, here. And uh, also, Marty Brueggemann, thank you for being here today. With oh, it's absolutely my pleasure. Thank you so much uh, for inviting us. And what a treat that we can have a pair of brothers here to talk about this great music. Yes, and also I have here beside me uh, my brother, John Maria, uh, who is probably known mostly on the Legacy of John Williams website as the author of the beautiful illustration that is on the top of the logo for our website. An uh, illustration so, that has been viewed by the man himself, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, I actually presented to Maestro John Williams himself the illustration in Vienna when me and Gian Maria went to attend his beautiful concerts with the Vienna Philharmonic at the Musikverein in Vienna. Uh, and so I had the immense privilege to be greeted by Maestro John Williams at the end of the Sunday concert. And so as a gift to, to him, I presented him Gian Maria's uh, drawing and, and he was very, very happy to receive it. And he was very amused, actually, because he kind of recognized his daily routine of <laughs> writing lots of music with scattered pieces of papers on his piano bench. <laughs> and he had a very nice and lovely laugh when he saw that beautiful illustration that actually became a kind of a trademark for, for, for the legacy of John Williams' website. It was, it was really a, a great privilege uh, to contribute to the website because I, I think your contribution is really uh, priceless in terms of, of uh, documenting this uh, very specific but also very, very important piece of uh, music uh, history. And of course, the fact that John Williams now has a copy of this drawing, whatever he is hanging, wherever he hang it, somewhere or just keeping it somewhere in a drawer, is just a, a thrill. Thinking that he has just a little piece of of me, but actually of both of us, uh, with him. And so, great pleasure to be here. I'm very happy to have a couple of brothers. I felt uh, some kind of kinship, if I may say so, uh, while listening to your podcast, uh, because I recognized, uh, um, you know, this kind of experience of growing up. I think that we are roughly about the same generation and people we grew mm -hmm. up in the 80s, probably we, uh, on a steady diet of the same kind of uh, <laughs> popular culture. And... Um, that there is also something very special when you can share this kind of passion with a family member uh, because you can sometimes really uh, get into the fine details about uh, about music or movie making. Even though you know, music is not my profession, uh, it, it's really a great treat to, to, uh, to have somebody within the family to talk about it. 
Right. I think. Yeah, I find that that's pretty common with uh, with love for film music in particular. That uh, your sibling might be your first compatriot. <laughs> There's something about being able to share that level of detail and depth for these scores that we love, and really these um, often very small slices of the scores that we love. Uh, it's especially when growing up, it, I would usually find it difficult to bring that sort of thing up in a conversation on the playground or something. And yeah. um, <laughs> that's yeah. There's you can't say enough about that. And that's just very because everyone on the playground was more of a Danny Elfman fan so the John <laughs> yeah unequivocally discussion. no <laughs> well well it, it it really warms my heart when i see now my son trying to share his love of john williams and of course john williams offered this particular um very unique uh, hook because uh, maybe he has friends who are not very familiar with music or film music but they of course they know star wars or harry potter they're huge fans of that and so, of course, you can use kind of that to evangelize about the maestro. Yeah, it's a great on-ramp for that. Um, uh, I'm reminded of uh, something that I think Despot mentioned in an interview years ago where he talked about connecting with the Star Wars score um, for some of its more uh, extreme um, or advanced orchestral techniques, as we might say, uh, you know, likening them to elements of Stravinsky or whatever. And... Uh, he mentioned in this interview, he was so surprised that his friends uh, latched onto those moments just as well as the, you know, more diatonic, tuneful moments. But yet they couldn't give Stravinsky the time of day. And uh, I think it, there is something about this music that's attached to this medium that's just so ubiquitous and popular and so well known and accepted um, um, you know, in so many, in so many folks that, uh, yeah, it's just a great opportunity for beginning to talk about, uh, more advanced orchestral music and kind of symphonic architecture and all the rest of that. I think that's true. I also think John Williams in particular, he's this amazing, uh, middle point between all of these wonderful traits that we admire in various composers. First of all, his melodic gift has been well celebrated and well documented his orchestrational talents his versatility his and then but the, i think one of his greatest gifts and one of his greatest virtues is how well literate he is in the language of cinema and the language of film music and i think he always without fail understands the best tool for the job, which is, I think, why his music is so potent and why it sticks with us. And I think that's the reason why um, people that have seen Star Wars can listen to that desert music on Tatooine. Yet, if you play them, you know, some Stravinsky, maybe it's not the same thing because they don't make the same emotional associations. But it isn't just an arbitrary thing. I don't think you could swap out classical music for Williams music and have the same effect. I really think he really is this great center point because it's the it's that mixture of the great harmonic and symphonic daring that he boasts but also mixed with this there's you always feel like you're in good hands and even amongst something incredibly diatonic and restrained and stately and measured there's always a little bit of darkness like he's always pulling you forward and that's why i think it's a great some little comparison. flourish or some little surprise and well yeah, yeah that you talk about kind of evangelizing people into the world of classical music i think that's something that john williams music in and of itself does because there's something 
another composer might choose to do something that is only, say, diatonic, where John Williams might have a very diatonic theme that's supported by really sort of chromatic or surprising harmony. Or you can take a, th a melody like the Harry Potter theme, for instance, where in and of itself is quite chromatic and um, suggests harmony that even amongst film that music he doesn't probably, even really express always in the yeah and it would be the kind of harmony that maybe in film music you'd associate with a more tense cue something almost horrific and terrifying yet he's able to present it in this balletic beautiful heroic powerful right. theme yeah well, i think i think the 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 theme itself the hadwick's theme is mm -hmm. kind of um uh, it's very uh, kind of a question mark kind of mm -hmm. theme because it, it evolves and it develops in a way that it feels very uncertain in a way, melodically. But yeah. he gives this beautiful uh, environment, a texture, textural environment where you feel very much at home in many ways. Yes. In the sense that he evokes these feelings of magic and wizardry and we make this association purely by our, you know, the, the, the cultural uh, association that we make is based on uh, the, the the shared mythological past that we. That, uh, his music is very much always uh, trying to get into, uh, and this is something I I recently uh, thought about because uh, I was talking with a friend just just today actually uh, on Facebook, and he was uh, talking about the the march of the villains from Superman, which is a beautiful uh, you know kind of. Um, steady march mm. uh which as legend has it that may have been the initial jawa theme yeah. yeah yeah exactly and and also john williams wrote several pieces in that kind of prokofiev like uh right. fashion yeah but uh, this that piece i remember very well that uh, superman was one of the very first soundtrack albums that me and Jean maria got when we were just you know nine ten years old more or less and i very distinctly remember that uh, when when we put on the record for the, the very first listening session that we did together, uh, that piece, of course, it was associated with the movie because it was sure. you know, the villain's march. But the way the piece is constructed and the way it develops, of course, it's a kind of a concert arrangement and it doesn't appear in that fashion anywhere in the movie. Right. So what happened there was that I started to uh, make pictures in my head, figuring out my own story, my own movie, oh, in beautiful. a way. And it wasn't associated with Superman or Lex Luthor or anything like that. But I was starting to think about, uh, maybe in very general, broad terms, about you know a march of toy soldiers marching <laughs> on and getting sure. bigger and bigger and bigger and trying to walk into a cliff and then falling down the cliff, you know? Yeah. And, oh, growing, and growing up, I, I really realized that that was an incredible power, the incredible evocative power of that music. You know, John Williams' music is able to uh, make you uh, feeling uh, very distinct images in your head. Right. Even yeah, not right, maybe not associated with the movie or with the, or with the, with the story that is attached to, but right. maybe with the broader terms. Well, I, I definitely, I think in a different era, he would have been like a Berlioz or a Respighi or even a Tchaikovsky, yeah. sort of a neo-romantic 
composer that would be able to because his music does tell a story and the thing that i so adore about his music is he uses some of the harmonic innovations of the 20th century as just other tools in his belt because you can listen to um the so many of the wonderful you know russian composers and people that create tone poems or ballet composers and as sophisticated and rich and as evocative as they can get um there's almost no composer that is able to draw from the full spectrum of the palette because like with Tchaikovsky for instance you get the beautiful stirring you know uh, emotional gorgeous romantic melodies and maybe with Stravinsky you get the really raucous and interesting dissonant surprising orchestral sounds but there's never you know one composer who's able to combine all of that I mean I think yeah, there were Williams can almost the... be like the best sort of retrospective of that yeah. music that we love yet it is so uh originally inspired and again as you just mentioned a minute ago well yeah there's just such a strong melodic voice there are in fact if backtracking a bit because I, I was thinking that it's almost kind of get like getting spoiled growing up listening to a lot of john williams because his music is very specific also not only well, in terms of the emotion of the Im images that it can evoke but also in the terms of the structure and the harmony um, i must also thank the both of you because uh, through your podcast i was able uh, to, to finally understand how much the harmonization is actually kind of a, the, the 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 really the great mark of john williams's oh, particular voice i think i mean probably you can say that of many composers that the harmonization mm -hmm. is really a trademark of a sure. particular composer but i understand okay so i like him because john williams harmonizes you know with this extended harmonies like that but also because he trains your ear to a very sophisticated kind of of music and i was yeah. uh, like my, my nine-year-old is um, uh, practicing the Hedwig's theme in a kind of a simple uh, piano reduction mm -hmm. and sometimes he plays and maybe he uh, hits a note not completely wrong and I say ah oh. and to me it's fine but he say no no it's not, it's not I have to to flatten that I have to sharpen that right. and and so it's really tuning fine tuning is here a lot thanks to John Williams so I think to uh, my 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 uh, younger son is six is playing the hell out of a Star Wars game somewhere and he has the TIE Fighter attack music. Uh -huh. And he cannot stop singing, you know, the rhythm, dum, 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 dum. And it's funny yeah. because it's not that intuitive, but John Williams no, right. is able to write a, such a syncopated rhythm that stuck into your head and educates you to, to count, you know. And, and so it's really like uh, growing up with a steady diet of really refined cuisine and not even knowing that thinking that, that no, that's normal and uh, so when I for instance I remember very well when I was a teenager a lot of people when you know a lot of my uh, peers were listening to a lot of rock and stuff like that and I couldn't find that kind of richness until I for instance discovered progressive rock and I said oh, okay sure, sure. that's more my thing and so Genesis or Jethro Tull okay and then right, uh -huh. there is a uh, inventiveness there is a, a lot more color a lot you know fancy instrumentation mm -hmm and development and and um i think it's great i think it's great but uh, it's it's funny because if you grow up listening to john williams you think it's commonplace you think right. oh that's what right. music is and uh, essentially to find somebody who is that uh sophisticated and refined it's not that easy and um also, it's like it's almost like he cannot help himself. He was thinking, you know, like he, he can he write maybe a very uh, direct diatonic melody, 
but sure. then he he sustained it with a a, a lot of a harmony that that's a lot uh uh, interesting, more interesting. I think also when other composers maybe uh, in the past that uh, took Williams themes because they were doing another installment of one of his franchises yeah. right. and maybe reharmonized his themes. And yeah. we won't suddenly, name any names. Yeah. yeah. No, <laughs> I mean, we, it's uh, never, you can think it, of a couple it, it of examples. It never feels right. right. And yes. I mean, yeah, I, I definitely remember in particular um, in the uh, the first Potter film that he wasn't involved in, when you hear, I won't say the name of the composer, but you hear the first. a wonderful in, composer. Yeah. Goblet of Fire, when it first gets not just reharmonized, but also. But yeah, the melody. Some of those is chromatic notes not, that yeah. you were talking about, this needs to be flattened, where it's like, it's just a little bit off. Um, yeah. And I think one of uh, the great thing about John Williams, I mean, because it, it isn't. Because um, you. It's been said before that, you know, he can present these beautiful diatonic themes with rich, complicated harmony, which is definitely true. But then the opposite is true, where he can take complicated harmony and make it sound as though it's diatonic. For instance, Vader's theme. You know, I I don't think ever before in film music history has music that's built of really non-tonal minor third relations been so singable, been so emblematic of a character. I mean, you can say that Williams' harmonic language is influenced by an earlier generation of film composers like Miklos Roja or Bernard Herrmann or people like that, which I think is true, yet I don't think any of them use that specific harmonic language to write as melodically and as memorably as he does. Even when Williams is implore, uh, uh, when Williams is employing these more advanced gestures, there's always just so much appeal in them. I mean, I think the Tie Fighter um, battle from the original film is such a great example. That sort of mixed meter um, on the page. I imagine reading it and it maybe being a little jarring or confusing or arbitrary uh when you hear what he's doing often melodically or rhythmically through these kind of surprising moments there's it's just so infectious and uh i agree with uh with what we're saying about how that can be spoil <laughs> spoiling when you encounter it at a young age um i think on the one hand uh, composers like williams uh the great film composers can sort of open a door to the classical repertoire uh, sometimes, though, you may find yourself, uh, you may be left wanting uh, going back to some of that uh, original material if you're kind of exposed to um, that Williams almost pop music appeal uh, rendering of uh, some of those uh, textures and rhythms and that sort yeah. of a thing. So well, of course, one thing that one has to do is to expand uh, the the horizon. I, for instance, uh, I remember well, I, Maurice and I listened to grow up with Williams, and of course, because of the cinema of the '80s, then you meet Alan Silvestri, Jerry Goldsmith, um, uh, Bruce Broughton. We can name, I, I think, Horner, a of yeah. composer who wrote wonderful uh, scores and. Uh, um, especially in the landscape, uh, if you if you if you compare that with the landscape of today, maybe you think, oh, we were really lucky uh, mm -hmm. back then. Yeah, um, I, I'd love also just to add uh, one note uh, to what Jamoria is saying. Is was also about I think the richness of the, most of the TV music that we were exposed mm -hmm. to, especially mm -hmm. from some of the US TV series that we were watching. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, you know, because I very recently kind of rediscovered some of those stuff. You know, like the Incredible Hulk, 
Oh wow! Even Fantastic. even even the A team or or Dallas <laughs> sure. or Dynasty or that stuff. Maybe we we weren't fans of, of Dallas or Dynasty, but it was music that was kind of in our ears because you know an orchestral uh, score is week to week. Yes, so and that, is, and that was kind of a advanced or maybe not too complex uh, a kind of uh, language for TV because it was very direct, but it was a lot more uh, a lot richer than probably nowadays is so that that was very important our ears were already you know very kind of uh, receptive to what was you know something very interesting in terms of maybe a harmonic language or melodic contour and things like that and maybe it was very unconscious in many ways oh sure yeah that's such an excellent point i think television uh television music television underscore uh is sort of a gateway drug for a lot of uh extended musical vocabulary uh especially let's say you go back to carl stalling's great music of with course, Looney yes. tunes and the Mary but I, I do remember specifically yeah. uh, a very a short-lived tv show which uh, is called uh, scarecrow and mrs king and I do remember it was a very short-lived TV show, and in Italy it was never big. But I do remember that the, the theme music, the title song, the title tune, was uh, absolutely catchy, and it was uh, by uh, Arthur Rubinstein. Oh, uh, it was not not the pianist, uh, the the right. TV the composer Arthur B. Rubinstein. Right. Uh, and it, and I remember when I was listening to that as a young kid, I I, I was kind of convinced it was John Williams. Because mm. it was written in that fashion of, you know, very catchy in the, in the harmonies and very, yeah. you know, very engaging in the rhythms that he used. And it was, uh, and I think that in those years it was very common to have maybe even a minor TV show with a very carefully constructed uh, score, uh, even just the title music, uh, by a fully respected composer. People talk a lot about Star Wars, I think, as being such a huge influence, but I think it's a little bit more of like the one, two, three punch of Jaws, Star Wars, and then Superman yeah. the year after that I think, first of all, cast a huge shadow on the landscape of film music and film composers, but I think also gave so much freedom to composers to say, you know, this is the kind of richness that not only can you deal with, but this is what now film goers are going to expect from their yeah, also cinema. This is what music. a blockbuster will sound like um, yeah. as that's being defined right in that same time period. Yeah. And, and, and I have a question for, for you, Will and Marty, actually, what, what do you think is that uh, is essential or that makes John Williams' music so catchy for kids, actually, because we were, uh, we are so far we are talked about your our experiences as uh, young kids growing up listening to John Williams' music and being very excited. So, at least in part, we have already answered that. But if you have to boil down to one or two key elements of what uh, renders John Williams' music so. Uh, catchy for 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 kids. Uh, well, what do you think that will be? That's a that's such a great question. Um, you know, I think it has to do with how we often view children, honestly, um, in our kind of global society. And at least here in America, um, I think there's been sort of a growing tendency uh, to sort of, um, on the one hand, maybe infantilize children. Um, 
and uh, on the other hand, it can sometimes feel like children are exposed uh, to things earlier than we're sort of prepared prepared for. Uh, so it can sometimes feel like there's this gulf between uh, material that uh, is maybe overly catered to you and all of the edges have been sanded down. And then there's material that's kind of urging you on to teenagehood or something. And I think John Williams' music... Uh, at least I can speak for myself, it really spoke to me as a, as a child because it had all of the appeal, the wonder, the strong clarity of a great melodic line, let's say, but it didn't shy away from danger, um, from mystery, from the confusing, from the misunderstood. And or even Hedwig, sexuality Hed and romance. Oh, and sure. I mean, I think Hedwig's thing, theme is a great example. Um my studio partner's kids just the other day and I was sitting by the piano. What do you want to hear? Harry Potter theme. And there's something we've already spoken about the chromatic complexity in that melody and in the underlying harmony. Um, that's not too advanced for kids. That That is the childhood experience. And I think mm -hmm. it's actually um, misunderstood more often than not. And in the hands of a great artist like John Williams, it's it's this immediate connection. And for those of us that can put a name <laughs> to the art um, and looked at the LP cover and, you know, until we like bore holes in it with our eyes, um, you know, it's a lifelong relationship. I also think that um, getting, if you're, if you, if I were to maybe be analytical to, it's hard to dissolve things that are so rich and full of complexity into simple rules or tropes because I don't think John Williams music is made simply. I don't think he has some sort of basic formula that he can depend on. I think I imagine it's just the result of a lot of experience, wisdom and hard work. But I do think the element taste. to which yeah. he crafts his melodies and how brutal it sounds that he is to himself when trying to find uh, a set of pitches that are iconic um, I do think that is a big part of it. And I mean, I think even if you look at some of my favorite of his melodies would be like in Home Alone. Yeah, nah, 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 nah. Like I, I get the sense that he probably slaved away over just those pitches because I, I think it's like the, the, the level of structure and form. And I mean, he's clearly so literate with music. I think the, the means of developing a theme is probably almost second nature to him. I think what he spends a lot of time on is finding those four or five notes that immediately work as almost a motivic trigger because it has to, in the film, it has to work as like a light motif. You need to hear, you know, bum, 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 and know, Oh, okay. That's this character theme and I think it's his ability to write so concisely yet have so much personality in it's it's really I think about con, con, compression and condensing ideas the fact that almost all of his best and most memorable themes you can express and communicate in three or four notes um, and they are distinct. They're not, yeah. you can't just replace one for another. They don't all sound the same. Well, personality, I think is such a great, great word there. Will. um, uh, you know, it's not only that a melody might have great economy of note, uh, or rhythm, but yeah, there's usually some appealing turn 
uh, or intervallic jump or something that allows it to really allows it to really stand out in your mind. Um, because it's, I mean, and this goes to how motifs have to work in a film. Um, it's not only that it has to be, uh, appealing and hopefully make you feel something, but it has to be recognizable. And honestly, I think that's an art that really wasn't fully developed until the advent of, of the film score. I think it just so happens that there are recognizable motifs yeah. in great ballet and opera music. Um, but I don't think the necessity was there in quite the same way uh, as it is in the medium we're talking about, where the music has to has to battle against so many other sonic forces and um, so many other elements that are vying for your attention. Well, that's an interesting thing. It's like oftentimes when uh, a classical analysis, or even when I hear people discuss Wagner, um, and discuss the his use of light motif in opera. So often they'll be like, "Oh, listen to this motif," and it's like, "Yeah, na na na." It was just like some chromatic thing, and it's like, "Okay, that can be a motif, but a John Williams motif is like a full. It's like a ringtone, yeah. <laughs> you know. A John Williams motif is yum bum 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 bum. It's it's not mistakable. You can't yeah, just if it were a run drawing, to the piano this, and play the it. The silhouette of the character would be recognizable. Sort but of. But like we can also you know? we can we can also point to some of the cue specific material he uh, very often writes, and sometimes it's just even a maybe a rhythm pattern that he uses like uh, we were talking about the tie fighter attack sure. uh rhythm motif or i was thinking about also well, i think of the, the the march of the villains of superman for instance i think it's the rhythms in that melody are more interesting than the actual pitches if you were to just play the pitches at even distance uh, rhythmically i don't i think it would be really quirky it would be just ta 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 yeah i, I cannot even sing it no that's know? a great point but i think that the I, march I, of I the villains that. is uh, is 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 the tam tam taram it's the difference uh, it's very pointed uh, you know, you're yeah. accented yeah but then in that case i think also the arrangement and the specific choice of timbre is also important there too i was thinking about um Jabba's theme, actually, from Return of the Jedi, which uh, the like that that kind of like minory theme on on the tuba with the sort of glossani that's like he only would have written a theme like that for the tuba. So it isn't just about the pitches, but the pitches are informed by the character and the it's all informed by the, it's kind of like hard to know what came first. It doesn't resort just to the, you know, basso buffo kind of melody right, for, right. for the yes. big fat villain. Right, it's not the cliche. It goes, yeah. it exceeds yeah. the cliche. Well, and I love, you, you've spoken about this on this very podcast many times about John's incredible gift for writing idiomatically for every instrument in the orchestra, including very rarely heard uh, instruments. Um, yeah, what a, what a great example. There's some, uh, so... Uh, with a great John Williams theme, it's not only that uh, the melody and rhythm and underlying harmony is appealing, but it's often cast to an instrument in a perfectly idiomatic 
way. Um, and right. there's just, there's, <laughs> there's no com competing. And also that. in a way that, and if I can praise also the, the kind of virtuoso writing, because also he knows the sweet spots of an instrument, you know, where, where does it sound good? But he also writes uh, uh, many times at the edges of what is possible. With a right, at the edge instrument. of the tessitura right. where it, and so, and so it, the it high, kind of, high winds in a lot of the Star Wars material. But, but not, really not, but not, but he can do that in a way that it doesn't uh, doesn't sound like he's, he's stretching the muscles just for the sake of okay, I want to just go out there with like in a concerto like mentality. Right. Especially in film music, is very very careful to still have it in a way that is presentable and sounds like it's easy. Way, so, right. So, so I, 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 yeah, I think that's a great point. Well, I think though for in melodic instances it's almost like you imagine you know puccini writing a great melody for a soprano or a tenor where it, he's trying to in schindler's list for instance it's like he wants the violin to be weeping and he wants it to get into those points where you feel the the pulling and the tension i mean even in like the concert uh version of the princess leia's theme from star wars at the end where the violin goes in the incredibly high register there That's you so can tell that he's like eliciting gorgeous. a specific kind of emotion from that timbre or what marty was talking about in star wars films oftentimes he'll write the winds way high up but usually there's a specific sound of like you know the e-flat clarinet and it's high register that's meant to kind of yeah, meant have to some, sound alien yeah, or something. yeah. Uh, I, I think it's about such intention when writing idiomatically and when it's I guess non-idiomatic in a traditional sense, it's intentional. It's you know, it's meant to have a. If it's the oboe in a squeaky register, he wants it to be squeaky. It's not just because he wrote a high melody and he's like, well, the oboe sounds nice. It, it, there's always that great intention, and I think that's why so many performers love playing his music because uh, it's it's always so satisfying to play his music because it, it's written right. for every instrument in a way that's kind of like, I don't know, doing what that instrument Yeah, even in best. string ostinati, if you actually look at the parts, there's some, again, there's some little appealing moment um, that takes it out of just the monotony of Boeing. As you know? many people pointed out, he also writes with a player in mind, sometimes for specific performers, he writes for them. Uh, uh, but also, uh, there is a little detail that you unveiled about the uh, about the, the the flying theme of ET. At one point, you have I think two flutes uh, that are playing same. Uh, it is the same line of uh, they're playing together, but not in unison. So the flute A is doing something, flute B is doing something else, and then the next uh, the next beat they switch. So flute A plays the, the, the what flute B was playing. And, and you say just from the performance standpoint, it makes it more interesting to play. And that also shines through the performance. Uh, right. Whereas uh, I remember uh, the interview Maurizio did with uh, Cecilia Tan about sometimes the cellist uh, going on stage today, opening the book and say, oh, okay, it's... Uh, it sustains notes. It's long it's notes. Easy, easy day notes. on the stage. Well, yes. <laughs> yeah, I heard. Yeah. I heard that episode. That was wonderful. Well, I had the the great fortune to study a bit with Conrad Pope, and I remember something he said about, uh, say, like an orchestral tutti. It's like, let's say you have this fortissimo moment. Would you really hear the second bassoon? Possibly not. But how does that second bassoonist feel? 
sitting out while the rest of the orchestra is in this energetic moment. And that sort of, that psychology of the player is alive in Williams' music. And uh, whenever you have the opportunity to look at the score level or the part level, you see that care. And it's really not surprising. I mean, there's a reason that I think all of us uh, brothers and siblings and fans of John Williams' music uh, continue to find so much fascination there. There's We almost intuit that there's this level of care um, in the music well, that I think we're particularly and, when you get yeah. to the the concert arrangements that he's orchestrated himself I feel like there even becomes a further level of awareness of the player's intention um, you were talking about the flying theme from ET there's another great it's, it's very simple but just the the horns in that piece are just doing kind of the repeated note chordal a very kind of simple part a type of thing that french horn players are are used to doing but what i so marvel with john williams is whenever there's an instrument doing a functional thing like that maybe they're just playing something rhythmic or something chordal he always finds ways of breaking apart the formula so what i so love about in that flying theme where the breath because you need to give breath for the horn players to breathe but he never has them breathing in the same spot twice it's not like in what's interesting about it also it's not meant to be totally invisible it gives the part this kind of interesting rhythmic dance and kind of ballet to it that it's slightly lopsided i think the score to to the score to Hook is full of yeah. this kind of uh, mastery in, in giving yeah. the instrument the, each player something juicy and uh, or something that is not dull and repetitive and uh, and spice it up and it shines too because uh, it's really I mean Hook is so colorful uh, it's almost uh, you, you pulls every stuff possible. It's, um, uh, what about I, I was thinking did you did you as musician, you know, um, I think both yeah, composing but also performing. Uh, did you did you tackle many Williams's uh, parts? You know, growing up, uh, did you regularly maybe try to 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 sink your sink your teeth in in, in John Williams's pieces? Uh, when you were growing up, studying music, piano, whatever other instruments. Uh, you learned yeah i would I, I would sort of pray every night that um my band director would would program something um i i remember playing uh a very interesting arrangement of can you read my mind growing up um and then i think a couple of of other moments uh so i actually haven't really had the fortune to play much uh in in sort of a formal setting um but it's interesting i, I that kind of brings you back again and again to uh, your own instrument, your piano, or whatever it may be, to, to try to keep knocking your head against the wall and, and seeing if you can kind of crack these harmonies, crack the figuration and the gestures that are, that are happening um, in the music. But no, I mean, there are, uh, uh, I, I do just want to say there are some, I think, wonderful arrangements um at all sort of uh levels for in, you know in different band programs of some great john williams arrangements i think for me uh, where uh, where his music most made the impact on that kind of intimate level and it's probably my favorite level of i guess intimacy with a composer is uh for me at least trying to figure something out from memory and with john williams 
the biggest challenge often for memory is are those tricky little chromatic notes. Um, is it yum ba dum bum 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 or is it yum ba dum bum bum bum? And the reason that's especially tricky is because he does both in the score. Um, but yeah. it, it, so it's like fi those little moments where you're like, both of these sound good. Which one is it? And the biggest thing for me was kind of discovering the uh, just a sheer level of joy that I discovered from um, figuring out some of his uh, unique, unique harmonic choices in a piece, whether it's something from E.T., like just sort of the, his delightful freedom of kind of wandering major seventh chords or whether it's his sort of parallel minor triad chord language. And once you can kind of discover those paint brushes and play around with them yourself as a composer, I think right. those are some of the most, for me, um, exciting moments where you feel like, oh, the world is is wide open in that these are no longer just very specific things attached to very specific pieces, but these are um, tools in and of themselves in the way that, you know, a bassoon is, has a sound. Well, his sort of minor chord paintbrush is its own sound that he's used in lots of scores and other composers right. um, have used that to some degree. So I, finding those elements of his music, um, both through kind of score study, through listening, um, and just figuring out for fun. I think maybe when I was younger, the those kind of really intimate moments where you're scratching your head and saying, is this really what it is? Like, I mean, I remember a moment that really always sticks out to me, the ending of the Raiders March, the bum, 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 where it's that sort of flat six to, uh, if the... kind of chord progression um if you think in c major it would be like a flat to b flat to c yet each one of these chords is a major seventh chord when when yeah usually with the seventh on the bottom you know in figuring that out i'm like oh i don't think i've ever heard that in a piece of music before and it it doesn't it's completely the opposite of diatonicism you know i mean it's like not only are neither of those chords in a, a major key but they're not even sometimes those that progression will be described as say modal borrowing that that's borrowed from the parallel minor but in that instance each one of those chords being a major seventh chord doesn't fit within that reckoning and you start to see his sort of harmonic freedom as just using chords as their own paintbrush in a way that composers like Debussy or Ravel sort of would, yet he can also have the like formal structure of harmony of maybe more of a Germanic tradition. Um, I don't know. These are things that were huge revelations, I think, to me of that, that you can kind of combine and borrow from all these different traditions. And how much of that, uh, according to you, is also uh, derived from his experience as a jazz man? Right. Oh, I think true. I think a lot of it. it it's funny because uh, I th I think we had a similar experience with being exposed to John Williams music as we were younger, where it felt like a portal to classical music was being opened in front of us. And I think what's often maybe not fully understood is the jazz context behind uh, the great composers like Johnny Williams and uh, Jerry Goldsmith and others who came up through. 
uh, kind of a TV pipeline and an arranging and had this arrange, arranging background. Um, but there's, there's just something I think about the power of the symphony orchestra where it's very difficult to hear the jazz in it unless you're very clearly looking for it or unless the orchestra kind of more overtly tips into that to that idiom. But I think it's hugely important. And I think a foundation in jazz harmony uh, really goes a long way. One thing that's interesting about, if we could call them the rules of jazz, is that color and mood, I would say, uh, dominate. And they sort of uh, dictate what is, in quotes, right or wrong. And uh, I think that's very much true in that example at the that cadence in the Raiders March that Will's mentioning. Um, those major sevens, they just they add this color that a jazz pianist or jazz arranger would be very comfortable with. And there's just this excitement of that jazz language coming into the orchestra. And yeah, I, I don't know that it's fully understood. I think uh, the the prevailing consensus around the impact of the Star Wars score is that um, it's this return to uh, neo, or it's this neoclassicism, it's re return to the classic film score, but there's an advanced um, jazz language, there's an advanced rhythmic language that um, for my ear is very am American in John's case, and I think very fresh. Joe Kramer, who was also uh, a guest on your own podcast, which right. I had last year, and he mentioned specifically a, a, a section of, of the Star Wars, of the first Star Wars score that he kind of was able to treat back to Miles Davis, a kind of blue. You know, the, the mm. opening piece is so wild. I love that. And, yeah, and, right. and the opening chords of the very first piece of the Miles Davis album are uh, very similar to, uh, to a section in the, uh, on one of the scenes on the Death Star in Star Wars. And, and and that was probably very, uh, it was important to me to understand because I think that that era of jazz men like Miles Davis or Jill Evans and people like that who were very, very advanced in their own um, techniques and not just playing but also in arrangements were, were very fundamental, I think, for, for John Williams when he was a young uh, kid, actually listening to that music. The use of color, as Marty was describing it, I think is a, a big part of his approach. But then also so many of these different, I think, harmonic techniques and tricks that were in the ether. I mean, it, it, Miles Javis is someone who kind of his entire musical career flirts with all these different kind of quasi jazz experiments, I guess you could call it. Um, but the fact that so many, I think one of the reasons why John Williams music is really hard to categorize or put into one specific box is that he's never just using one device. His music, I find, is never simply diatonic. It's never simply modal. It's never simply one thing or another thing. It's always filled with more levels of detail and color than almost any other kind of music you can find that's as accessible. And I think another thing that his jazz language um, was a tremendous influence is kind of his devotion to almost like a chaotic sense of surprise. And it's something that you notice, I, I find like if you ever listen to a jazz pianist play a really simple, beautiful ballad, 
whenever the melody returns to the one, when you're finally going to resolve, they almost always throw in some kind of surprising, jazzy, deceptive moment where maybe you think you're going to land on the one and it's actually this flat two major seven chord. And then maybe they'll go to like the flat six major nine or something. There's always this sense of surprise and dazzling the way that they can kind of wind down into an ending. And I think that's something that John Williams has. Uh, I mean, I think of like the ending to a more recent score, like the BFG, um, all the little weird chromatic tones that he's playing on that flute to eventually resolve to an exhale. Um, it's almost as though each member of the orchestra is so animated with color and so bouncy that to restrain them all, they're all still percolating and bouncing like popcorn. I mean, one of my favorite moments is in Superman. You get to that. And, and, and you know, the Superman march is one that is, you could think of just being about these pillars of stable chord tones, you know, the fifth and the root. Bum, 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 bum. It's so confident and strong. Yet at the end of it, it has this just dizzying, chromatic, almost atonal sort of flourish that happens at the end. Um, after the... Uh... And it's just like that. That's such a dizzying <laughs> run, and it's hard to think of like, oh, that's Superman. Yum, bum, 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 bum. I don't. I don't want to oversimplify, but uh, listening to that really reminds me when watching the film as a little kid, and that uh -huh. you know, recognizing that that was the end of the piece, and the movie is about to start. It right. puts you really right. in that feeling of excitement. So, okay, oh, it's yeah. about to start. Now it's you know we are. Finally, and how long can he delay that <laughs> final second? That's like a yeah. big, I mean, like something if you wanted to do a joke or a, a parody of, and one thing I think you maybe could satirize about John Williams is that he almost never wants it to end. That And this is something well, that- Well, I love you mentioned that in your episode with, with Frank Lehman, um, the fun that John can have, particularly in the concert suites for these sort of fake out endings and probably with the forest battle on Endor being the ultimate example of that. Was it four or five sort of uh, fake out endings? <laughs> He's just fantastic. The, the fun thing of that Superman ending is that when you, because I almost, almost, you almost have to sing along when you, when you listen to one of his marches right. and more, you know, recognizable. Yeah, things. Yeah. Okay. Which part I'm going to sing at the end, which <laughs> right. which part I'm going to try to sing along, but, but where where every section is just uh, bubbling with with excitement, yes. chromaticism, and so it's very fun. Okay, now today I will I will do the melody of the trombones, or well, <laughs> I will keep the rhythm of the trumpets. It's, it's very fun. It's, it's really rewarding to the to the ear. Uh, his confidence in using the extended harmonies, and sometimes he, he you ask yourself, how does he know that? Because if it's not textbook harmonization, right. and if he's borrowing, you know, you say, oh wait, I borrow a tone from the neighboring uh, or the parallel minor. How does he know he can do that so freely? And I think jazz must be the answer. So, so probably he, all those years that, pro, pro, of course, it's probably natural talent and natural ear. Yeah, I imagine that's part of it. And then also just um, his incredible experience on the ground as uh, as a session pianist in so many great scores. You have to imagine everything he gleaned from the Newman brothers or Conrad Salinger and others. There's a great clip where he's rehearsing um, 
a suite for Return of the Jedi with the Boston Pops. Uh, I can't remember what uh, television program it was initially broadcast for. And he's doing some work uh, for Temple of Doom while he's there in Boston. And they play just a tiny clip of him working on this action passage on the piano. And I can't believe there'd be any other human on the planet who could hear that and realize, yep, that'll that'll sound great in the orchestra. Um, <laughs> right. It's... It's very difficult, uh, even for someone with maybe more of a jazz-leaning advanced ear, to kind of hear how those intervallic relationships are going to work. So, I mean, I think there's there's really no shut, shortcut for uh, the experience here. Yeah, I mean, I think if we understood, we'd be making music like John Williams. <laughs> I mean, it, I think that that's that little... And what I love about those moments is, to me, those are windows into... I think his true genius or it's almost like these are moments where it's like, I'm just going to give them a taste of what I'm capable of, but I'm always holding back a little. Um, and I, I just, I, those are the moments I'm so fascinated by. And he almost seems to delight in taking the most unrelated, seemingly discordant disassociated pitches in making them, catchy memorable i mean even if you think of i mean there's always this really daring sense of why those notes but yet you hear it and it's like he finds a way to if not logically then emotionally justify it and support it by the way that the harmony shifts and pulls and resolves return of the jedi is also one of the first record i think it was the first uh, soundtrack we had on cd i i think i quite remember the day we we found it in, in a shop and yeah and i do too went to yes. our parents <laughs> and I think, yeah so you listen to that you are I don't know how old were we. I think no much. I wasn't much I think older 10, than nine. Ten, ten on your eleven. And, yes, and, around that time. And, sure. and feeling perfectly comfortable that John Williams will lead you through this, you know, melodic meandering without, you know, always feeling very secure. Um, right. So his his uh, melodic daring is never uh, like in in, in an, you know uh, for the sake of of doing something out there. Right. Uh, right. And it's fascinating that he himself sometimes he he he's very fond of more avant-garde kind of of thing. I, I think he recently right. in an interview with Alex Ross, he said maybe uh, the kind of res uh, inspired kind of music that he wrote for images is probably something that he would have uh, ended up doing in, were he not uh, were he not uh, maybe a successful film composer uh, full time. But it's hard to believe because it's also so sincere when you listen to John Williams do, you know, his more accessible work. It never sounds like, oh, okay, it's doing a pastiche. It's, you know, it's slacking off and it's doing something easy. But it, no, no, it's fully there. I think that's his way of being engaged, frankly. I think that's like, that shows why, I think why his work is so vital and is so strong is that he loves it. He, he he makes sure there's enough detail that he's getting a full balanced diet as well as the audience. And I think it keeps him engaged. And it's why some composers music can feel a bit at an arm's length because it's either reductive or it truly is a pastiche in the sense of it's not adding anything more uh, stylistically than has already been there in the past. And that's why I get so frustrated when people try to label Williams music as simply a pastiche, while there are clearly elements of many of his scores that are love letters to different composers or styles. 
I can't think of a single instance where he doesn't inject um, elements that are completely central and integral. And yeah, to there's his never own there's never autopilot. Yeah, even in the cues um, that kind of harken back to the temp music a little more overtly. Um, when you actually get into the details of looking at the score, um, the voicings of the harmony, the the casting of the harmony in the orchestra is is always quite different from whatever you might have considered. Well, even a, if you think of the cue in Home Alone use. that's meant to be like the Russian dance. I mean, the harmonies in there are just almost in the first five seconds. Okay, Tchaikovsky would never do that. You have these parallel planing major chords. Tchaikovsky wouldn't write like that, yet it's very clearly a nod to that, but he isn't he isn't simply doing a sound alike to this other composer. And it's the same thing if it's meant yeah, to he's be still, Stravinsky he's still or perspiring uh, and working and working um, quite hard through, through those moments. You know, um, I think it's a really interesting question. Uh, how, how interested, how passionate um, is John about these infectious, almost uh, pop level melodies? And if we're to take him at his word um, from interviews, it would seem as though uh, it this kind of happened by accident. It was this turn in his career he didn't really plan for. I'm sure there's some truth in that, but I, I have to agree with Will. Uh, at least in my experience, I don't think any artist can, can really excel at something that they don't truly love. And... Uh, just the corpus of these these melodies is really just astonishing. I think it was uh, Richard Dyer, the Boston Globe former mm. music critic that followed him very closely when he went to Boston and followed him, you know, growing in a, as a music director of the Boston Pops, that in an interview he, he said about John Williams that you know, the, the key quality of his music is honesty, actually, because he never wrote a dishonest note in his entire career, in the sense that when you hear music of heroic resolve, it's because he's feeling that heroic resolve. If he's writing music that, you know, carries a lot of uh, romantic or even erotic <laughs> uh, right. sense of passion, it's because he's feeling that, you know, is he right. never... Right resorts to you know to chip tricks or to you know simplistic way of totally you know because agree. he could do sometimes you know make his life a lot easier <laughs> in many ways you know <laughs> yeah. to resort oh, to yeah. you know to uh, common things or common languages in terms of you know musical solutions but he always tried to you know put something extra even in the simplest uh, cues or even in the most you know right. boring scene that he has to score because right. that that's what I think he is. He's a reactive composer. He's well, and when what, you look at any of the projects he's actively seeked out, it almost seems like he's looking for challenge. If, if you mm. think of something like Memoirs of a Geisha, where it's it's like he's going out of his way to push himself into new territory, or even like any of the comments he's made about how you know he's a composer who loves doing rewrites and he likes working hard, and that's something that for me, I just. I can hear that as like a, that's a nice thing you're supposed to say, but if that's something someone genuinely feels, I can't relate to something less. Like he enjoys having to do more work for himself and to throw out amazing things that he, like, I think that just shows the level of integrity that he has as an artist, but just as a person, he's a really hard worker 
and always wants to approach things genuinely. I think that also goes in line with his sort of rule for himself about how he doesn't like to read scripts and he doesn't want to know too much about the movie and what it's supposed to be and what the score is supposed to be until he sits down and watches the cut. Cause I think he wants to have that genuine emotional reaction because that emotion is where the music comes from. And uh, that, and that relates also to what we were saying before about, uh, about the, the, the power of his music, uh, uh, to, to young people, to even to kids is because, uh, and you were saying so, so beautifully before about the fact that he's able to, you know, to strip down to the core essential elements and make maybe a really beautiful four, five, six note theme or motif. And that that is what is working. And for him, is a very hard work because it means peeling and strapping things away, you know. Right. Uh, but at the same time, he's able to, you know, to even to ransom the simplicity of the material in a way uh, through this advanced more uh, or more complex uh, orchestral solution or a more interesting harmonic uh, texture uh, on, right. on, on the, on right. the bottom. Right. So that, that is very important for him to find this balance. And that's why also I think his music is so, so rich and so full of discovery, even pieces that we know, you know, by, by, by heart after listening to them for so many years, even, you know, the March from Superman or the flying theme from E.T., there is always something, you know, that pops out suddenly, even at the, you know, 200th listen to that piece, you know, so, okay, he's doing that thing. And and it keeps you engaged and it keeps you uh, interested in finding uh, surprises. And that's something really a, a gift that he has as a composer, as an artist. Well, and I love what that shows uh, is possible with the art of film score. Uh, for me, one of the things I find most exciting about John Williams' film work is that it it often, um, through all of its incredible detail, complexity, and beauty, it suggests a world beyond the frame that we won't ever see, that sometimes is barely audible or, frankly, inaudible. And But the philosophy of that, of putting that work into something that won't be heard or seen, uh, that just it stirs me, uh, and it's it's so it's it's so inspiring. It's um, I I think in the Steve Jobs biography by Walter Isaacson, I think they talk about how with the first Macintosh they developed, um, there was an engraving I think on the inside of the shell of the computer that was signed by all of the team that worked on it, and this is something that essentially no user of the machine would ever see, but there's that, that similar philosophy of, I know I, I did it. Um, and I, I've got to say, I think that, that interesting, um, kind of aesthetic of there being this detail beyond what's discernible and extending beyond the frame. I think that's a huge part of why the original star Wars was so successful. A lot has been said about, um, the visual aesthetic and how George went for this lived-in, worn-down world. And I, again, I think that's brilliant. But John's music evokes that, oh, this world has existed for centuries. It really is a long time ago. Um, there really are all of these vast cultures. Um, and you don't have to suspend any disbelief. You're almost explicitly experiencing it through the music. The, the other thing that is just so... John Williams is so motivic. He he writes so many themes. Even the themes that he wouldn't call themes are themes. Like <laughs> within a single cue, yeah. 
one little motive that was once a counter melody then returns in a different you know, altered form. And it's like, okay, now that's its own character and its own theme. And I mean, I mean, I remember several years ago, Marty and I rewatching hook together and being like, this has to be the most number of motifs or themes that are associated with characters and ideas of any film ever. I mean, not only are there so many, you know, song like melodies in the score, but there are all these smaller motifs there. I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable. And so many of his scores are that way. Uh, my my uh, one of my children was looking at the uh, last crusade the other day mm-hmm. the beginning of them is incredible because you <laughs> he, at one point he, once he, he, is there a theme for the cross of coronado and i say yes he's da 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 and With i say guitar, that's also yeah. for the panama hat guy dun, 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 dun. And then you and then start the, you know seeing the and then you have of course you have dun 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 the theme for the right, first right. adventure, but then you have all this this little fanfare at the one point the orchestra goes the the, the brass goes that could be a theme in and of itself. It's so strong and you just hear it away in one time. Yeah. Yeah, and then you have also the. Uh, the sneaking up to the cross theme. Yes. Almost a melodic kind of interest. I mean, right. it's so full. It's like it's throwing a lot of themes. Well, it's almost like when he does it that way, it's music meets prose. It's like people having a, a dialogue or discussion together because each one of those melodies uh, is almost like a word. And then by juxtaposing them all together, you create a sentence or something. I mean, a, a, a very economical score of this is for his minority part. I understand that it was Absolutely. written maybe a lot faster than usual, and it's a score that is... Uh, relies a lot more on color, but it's an absolutely fine score. It, it doesn't think that is subpar or that is uh, doing. It's just it decided to use a more, let's say, Herman or Goldsmith approach. Okay, I cannot. Maybe, maybe the film doesn't even require that uh, richness and generosity mm-hmm. uh, of thematic material, even though the the, the main theme of uh, the Sean theme is absolutely yeah, the Sean theme gorgeous. Uh, but. Um, uh, so he could do that. You can think, okay, I can do that also in Indiana Jones. You know, I go for a, a more economical approach in terms, right. at least in terms of melody. But he doesn't, and especially the second and the third Indiana Jones, I think, are rife with thematic ideas yeah. that are just presented once. And- That's also the nature of of the movies themselves. I mean, he always, as I was saying before, he he's very a reactive composer. As I think it was Doug Adams that uh, used that term in the discussion we did together for for the latest uh, Star Wars movie. The Star Wars discussion. Uh, yes, and and he he's a reactive composer. I mean, he finds the the right musical translations for for the sense uh, for what he's seeing, of course, but also the overall sense of the movie. And Indiana Jones films are, of course, over the top, and everything is exaggerated, and everything is so heightened in terms of. Uh, you know, um, of temperature, uh, uh, emotional temperature, but action temperature. And so the right, music right. follows suit. You know, the music has to heighten uh, constantly all we, everything we see on screen. I mean, from the tiniest detail to the most bloated uh, action sequence, but the music has to follow that kind of, of, of sense. Of, and he he's always very, very careful. He's not just writing, you know, colorful or rich music because he, he, he you know, because he can, but always because he has to follow a precise aesthetic uh, right. route. 
uh, and right. he's always very careful to about that and i think that one of the things that, that was essential for him to build this so com in, with so much confidence was the fact that he has uh, directors like steven spielberg besides him that really Absolutely. trust him and say go for it john don't don't worry uh, you 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 can write basically anything you feel is right for the film right that's such a good point that power that he has been bestowed maybe graciously by a director like Steven Spielberg is so important to the film's success. And I think a plea that I would make to more contemporary directors and producers and anyone in the more administrative side of film production would be to give composers the chance to have that type of freedom, because I really think films are capable of a kind of liftoff of a kind of excitement and, you know, reaching kind of like an 88 miles per hour in the DeLorean that they're not allowed to when the music has to do sort of the bare minimum to not offend what is happening on the visuals or the bare minimum to not get in the way of any other aspect. Right. And when John is able to be let free, I mean, I, I think that opening the first few reels of uh, last crusade, I think could stand up to any kind of first movement of a Bruckner symphony or a Mahler symphony. I mean, like that could be his great symphonic work that first, I mean, just not just all the motifs, but just the dazzling writing of all of the, the that's the thing that's so amazing is you can listen to the music on its own yeah. and it's just and that period so that post pops or mid pops period where he's, even more daring with his orchestration, I would argue, mm -hmm. and uh, the harmonic vocabulary. The Witches really, of Eastwick. Uh, uh, I think uh, the Witches uh, of Eastwick uh, yeah, is probably a, 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 a really a, a pivotal score for in his career. I, and I was watching the movie a few days ago because I, I caught it by, by chance on television the other night, and I, I started to watch it again. Were you able to restore the lost cues? Yeah. <laughs> no, but, but, but the fact that... He could have gone a much more easy route for that movie. I mean, mm -hmm, and, and so I, yeah. I, I, tr I questioned myself and I said, why, why he went so, so rich for, for a movie that could have maybe a much more banal sure. music. Well, I think if, if you look at the, the films that John would have grown up with, uh, or if you're just a fan of classic cinema, uh, I, I think it's clear where, where John's going. The great scores of a Steiner or Waxman um, or Korngold, uh, they're doing the kind of thing that we're talking about where they evoke more than is audible. Some of that is really the limitations of recording at the time. It wasn't possible to hear all of that in the orchestra. And I almost have the impression that Williams' orchestration, say from uh, sort of the blockbuster period, onward it's kind of his memory of how those scores sounded but it's actually more animated more dense more vivid uh than those scores similarly to how star wars and indiana jones are meant to evoke the um the storytelling and the acting and the plot of those old serials but they're also more vivid and so it's just this great match uh, we're in a weird period now to kind of um go along with what will is was saying where I think we have cases where the filmmaking uh, is maybe even further in that direction of uh, vivid and exciting. And I know I find it challenging to have the scores sometimes feel like they're, they're, 
they're not on that same that same trajectory. Not that you know we should just pursue dense orchestration um, with no limits or no no rhyme or reason. But I think for those of us that have grown up with the films of the '80s, like we're talking about, uh, there can be some some dissonance with the approach in a lot of those scores. Whereas I imagine older audience members of the films we're talking about in the seventies and eighties would have related to John's scores. They, they wouldn't have been far afield from what they would have grown up with. I think that there is a, I think a misconception nowadays Mm. because a lot of uh, film composers like to call themselves or be labeled by, by, by the collaborators as filmmakers no, because right. they like right. to you know to be involved very early on in the uh, in the process, and they start writing music based on the script, and like they like to talk a lot with the director and starting to get out ideas, which is absolutely fine. But more often than not, especially, and I'm talking about uh, mostly the Hollywood blockbuster scene, uh, you feel like that the end result is a, a huge uh, compromise, mm-hmm. and not in the in the best uh, sense of the word. In well, the sense that the probably, music is hugely compromised. Ab- absolutely, and and that's because more, more often than not, the filmmakers uh, aren't able to trust their composers to let them maybe uh, go maybe uh, to a different route, or uh, because they like to you know to f- make them sure that they follow the the guide track, yeah. or they 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 have to not not to move too much um, beyond what is, has been established or maybe the director right. has very very precise musical ideas that he he or she wants to stick on to I, I would argue that maybe it's just the opposite problem to me maybe there is a kind of a lack of uh, um, um, self-assuredness uh, how can I say of confidence for the aesthetics uh, so like um, uh, we were talking about this, Maurice and I, uh, offline about um, like a lot of aesthetic choices, like in the photography today, are left in post. You now you shoot with, sure. with with an open lens, you just catch whatever you can, and then you make your aesthetic choices later, later on because yeah. the tools nowadays allow that, and so you do not commit to a specific aesthetic. Mm. And I think that musically, it's also a little bit the same. It's like I don't know what to commit a specific aesthetic and but at the end you just do a kind of common denominator uh, kind of music that could be okay if it's a superhero movie or it's a spy movie or maybe it's uh you know because to me there must be a difference between for instance uh, oh yeah (laughs) no because i was thinking there must be a difference if you're doing uh, you know ghostbusters okay which is maybe you know it's something which has elements of the fantastic and it has to be a little bit grounded but it's a comedy and it's very important for instance that the music does a specific thing maybe he's playing the straight man against the, the comedy but if you're doing a superhero movie with a, a light-hearted superhero movie it's not the same thing it's not a right. comedy for instance right. it, yeah. or, i think also back to the future is a great, great because it's essentially a comedy um robert zemeckis said that uh, he tried to uh, try to uh, use a lot of things he learned from billy wilder but yet, sure. the music doesn't make me think of of, of an old Billy Wilder right. comedy. But it's the music a really, is really, really ambling, 80s. Yeah. A music that has to support a specific 
uh, aspect without being too, of course, too, 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 too heavy. And so, um, but those kind of aesthetic choices to me are, are not longer made. It's almost like because no aesthetic choices. Well, and made. the problem is that people don't appreciate the degree to which those aesthetic choices make a particular film immortal. Like what you just said is such yeah. a profound point that I don't even think I've considered. If you had a different kind of score to Back to the Future, it might be perceived as a completely different kind of film. We might totally. put it in the category of the odd couple rather and, than and, in yes. the category of like, I put it up there with almost like 80s action sci-fi movies, but it isn't one of those. But I put it in that yeah. category because of Alan's incredible score. I and think. it's very interesting to note that Back to the Future was actually uh, Alan Silvestri had to to tone down a little bit his music. If you listen to the, his early version of uh, Several Accused, he went a lot more bombastic actually. And uh, so because he was told Alan go big, you, the film the film had to <laughs> right. to look big to to be you yeah. know like uh, a super charged uh, blockbuster movie while it was essentially a comedy and right, so the he, special effects budget was mostly <laughs> the score exactly yeah, right. so so he went big but when they put the music against the, the picture they realized that maybe it's a little bit too much let's tone down just a just a notch I mean, he he didn't right. rewrite uh, the whole piece is because it's not but, scoring sword fights or anything yeah so and, and that was i think another great lesson because you don't have to you know sometimes the 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 key ingredient is very is something very thin is something very um, e even impalpable in some way so it's not it's a very very hard job to find the right music for a movie well, I think you both make <laughs> yeah, excellent absolutely. points both John Maria's point about there being kind of like a, a non committal attitude towards aesthetics and Maurizio I think you're also right in the sense of not not putting that sort of trust and faith in a composer I do think a lot of filmmakers almost resent the uh in that particular case between bob zemeckis and alan silvestri or uh you know a spielberg williams relationship where so much um runway is allowed for the composer to allow the film to soar i do think a lot of filmmakers want the movie to succeed or fail on their stuff and they don't they maybe feel uncomfortable with the music kind of being in there in the mix but like just to get to, to to get to your earlier point about aesthetics, I I, I do think um, the issue with not allowing a composer the freedom to kind of carry the film in that really uh, vital and in present way is I don't think movies are as exciting as they could be. I don't think they're as joyous. They're not as memorable. They're not as fun as they can be, and they don't have that kind of heart and through line that a uh, Spielberg Williams film is able to have because the music is, I mean, in many cases, 50% of the film. I mean, it would be like, I, I, to me, it's film needs to be thought of more as a medium like opera. You wouldn't go to an opera and put earplugs in and just focus on the staging and just focus on the whatever choreography is there and the costume design and the set. It's like you go for the music. And I think there's as much in the classic films, there's as much of a vital role that the score plays. And I also think for the, the types of composers that I think a lot of modern filmmakers really uh, 
kind of want their composers to be like. A lot of people praise Bernard Herrmann because I think he was edgier, he was darker, and he was kind of ahead of his time when it comes to this sort of minimalist idea for scoring. But the thing is, the score for Psycho didn't exist because he had to make 15 versions of each cue and was told, you know, take the melody out on this one. And you know what? We're going to take this cue from the end here and we're going to put it in the beginning without telling you. Yeah. He actually went against the director's wish. Yeah, he I mean, was he... a strong <laughs> kind of bull in a china yeah. cabinet guy that had really intense opinions. So I kind of don't think that, mm. I don't know, there, There's a he's not the right appropriate analog for contemporary film music except for instance for of course there is george lucas and steven spielberg or zemeckis are director that are very comfortable with you know because they know they need the music to do certain heavy lifting and i think the only other filmmaker i can think of that had the kind of confidence uh, is kind of walt disney who totally knew uh, how much how important was the score but of course in the past maybe it was different but in the, in the studio system period the director maybe wasn't even more wasn't involved in the scoring part maybe he was right. already going shooting something else what made me angry for instance is that uh, a director for instance uh, who's a stack i love and who is very cognizant of the power of music in movies for instance quentin tarantino um, who doesn't allow it? Say, I cannot trust the composer to do the best job. I need to compose the the score uh, with my record collection. I, he did spell the eighth bullet with Morricone, uh, fortunately. But you know that. Sorry to interrupt, but you know that uh, when he, he asked ended Mor- up using the thing. <laughs> exactly the because uh, because when he asked Morricone to score a hateful late basically what he wanted was morricone doing western music and morricone yeah. said no yeah. i won't do that <laughs> yeah. Yeah. no but what i think no but at the end the, the film is a better film for it for morricone doing his own stuff of course maybe, maybe I, i'm biased then because morricone of course is, was a composer of such stature that you wouldn't maybe try to contradict him but what i would say is that what makes me a little bit angry with his approach even though i love him as a filmmaker is that a lot of choices that he now uses in his movies are from other scores. It is music that w- didn't exist at once until a composer did it for a movie. So why can he trust a, a very talented composer, and there are plenty, to do that with one of his movies? You know, there is a kind of a really feel of entitlement uh, on your movie, and I can understand a little bit, you know, the author theory. And I think, for instance, sometimes Martin Scorsese seems to be like the, the same way. But um, uh, it's kind of a sad sad, uh, state of affairs that now almost every director has the same same feeling of authorship that has to be all-encompassing. Right, And, and and very few of them have that taste that Tarantino does, where I think I share some of your feelings in general about preferring an original score, but I have to admit that Tarantino has incredible taste when it comes to his needle dropping and use of existing music. I wonder, though, uh, <laughs> if that's necessarily a great influence on um, filmmaking in general Other for directors that maybe I don't do have that with Tarantino, there's like a specific kind of aesthetic, and there's a style to his filmmaking that I think is more akin to kind of like the advent of hip hop and sampling where he's almost like doing a riff 
on so many older genres and so much of his work is such a love letter to the history of film. I think he likes you using could do, all those the same like argument for Star paintbrush. Wars. Star Wars could have worked with a patchwork soundtrack yeah, from all serials and other scores totally. and classical music. That would have been a very postmodern kind of even more postmodern the specific right, right. sound of like the almost record scratchy old fashioned sound the tape is what Tarantino yeah. wants almost more than the style of the music. It's the fact that this is actually from some old seventies, you know, film. It's more about, I think, yeah, the intertextual that, kind of value. Yeah. To me, yeah, it's more yeah, that that's, that's what I get from his movies. But the problem that I have is what I at least like about Tarantino's films is Everything in the filmmaking is edited in such a way and timed in such a way that those cues are so effective and they work so well in the film. Yes. My problem mm -hmm. now with a lot of contemporary film scores, and I don't want to name examples, but Marty and I were actually just talking about this earlier this morning. So often I get frustrated watching films where there's an original score, they hired a composer, and the music sounds as though it was just needle-dropped you know, pre-existing music because the music is not supporting. Yeah, the ostinati continue tension. through the, tender dialogue or something. Yeah, like it, that. I mean, I was watching a movie recently where the whole opening scene of the film, I couldn't tell if what was happening in the scene I was meant to be engaged with because the music was doing the same thing it was doing over the opening titles, and it was so loud and present. And this is part of the score, and it gave me the feeling of like. You know, if you're watching a stage play and you had original, you know, interstitial music between the scenes, if the music carries into the next scene and you have people coming in and speaking, but the music's still going on in the same kind of mood it was when the curtains were out, it's like it just feels wrong to me. And because of people like Tarantino and so many filmmakers that do needle drop songs and score like that, we've... I, to me at least, internalize a kind of language of how music works with cinema. And there's composers nowadays that seem to just be completely ignorant to that. So I feel like, you, why even hire a composer if they're not going to do the job of supporting what's happening moment to moment? Yeah, not just, not just general blanket mood like a video game that you can put over the whole thing, but that kind of moment-to-moment -moment and, and also to kind of turn back to John, I, I would say not, not, this, not merely the simplest mood possible, the simplest mood reaction. Oh, they're inspired, so it's, uh, you know, female voices and Lydian kind of chord oscillation. Um, I think one of the things I love maybe most about John Williams music is how often I'm encountering an emotion I have no language for. It's not a simple emotion. It's not happy or sad. Uh, and it's fascinating looking often at the chord constructions to some of those, some of those great moments. Um, and again, it's, I, I can, I guess, only speak for myself, but that's something that I, I'm hungry for if I'm engaging with a piece of art. Uh, I don't merely want simple emotions reflected for that 90 minutes. The Last Crusade, when Donovan dips his cup in the water, what happens in the score there is so perfect. And like that moment sticks in my mind in such a, there's like such a putrid quality to what <laughs> happens in the, in the music there. That's like, it, it foreshadows what's about to happen when he drinks the cup, but it's like 
also at the same time, I mean, it reminds me of like Charles Ives where it's almost as though there are two pieces of music happening (laughs) at once in different valences where there's like the beauty of the water and that golden goblet and yet the horror of this interruption. Yeah. It's piercing uh, it. It's just just so brilliant. And And also because it happens after you see this beautiful textures in the strings where it's very suspended, very kind of religioso, uh, kind of writing here. Yeah, they're kind of reflecting the ostentatious yeah. appearance of this goblet. Yeah. Um, but again, this I think all goes to uh, I, I like what you said, Maurizio, about how uh, earnest John's music is. Every every note is earnest, really, and I love just the emotional moments that we get from that. I mean, I think one of my very favorites is the reveal of Indiana Jones and Raiders, which is this terrifying, almost horror movie monster, but it's so emotionally right. I can't imagine any composer being able to, to get that through in a contemporary film today. It's what are you doing? This emotion doesn't make sense. This is our hero. Don't you understand? He's on the poster. You can't do that. But even the old fashioned composers that we're told are kind of like, Oh, Williams is just, you know, redoing all these people from the past. There's just, I I just, there's no way that a character, there's no way that Robin hood is going to get revealed in that way. You know what I'm saying? It's like it, it, John Williams may have a, harmonic and orchestrational style language that evokes people from the past, but the way in which he utilizes all right, these his, elements. His storytelling instincts are so unique. Yeah. And that's maybe what I look forward to most in a new John Williams score is it's, I want, I want to just sit in awe of his taste and his choices and his personality. Yes. And basically in Raiders, actually he was channeling very consciously, you know, Max Steiner basically, because the, the whole score is basically a love letter <laughs> to, right. to Max Steiner. Something like it, King Kong. Especially. Yeah, the, especially, exactly. The, the way he introduces Indiana Jones uh, um, in, the, in the first scene when he's revealed after the... Right, the, stepping out of the shadows. Yeah. Exactly. It, it, it scores almost like he's King Kong. <laughs> right, right. Those heavy, yeah. low brass and trombones. And then you see that same instinct at the end of Force Awakens, that reveal of Luke. Yeah. But boy, is it is it beautiful. It's it's somehow right to be feeling terrified in that right. moment. The and awesome I wouldn't be able power. to put words on it. And it's something that you wouldn't you wouldn't think to describe that way as a novelist, but it's again the power of music to to be counterintuitive in that way. Yeah, but what's what's also great about combination of, of cinema music is that uh, whether the scene was cut with music in mind of no that the music had to do something uh, the music thinks very specific images and then you remember the shots that accompany mm-hmm. maybe a specific bar of music and even maybe you i remember uh, one thing i don't know if you did that when you were young but uh, when, when listening to the score uh Maurice and i when we were very young we tended to try Did to reenact kind yeah, of the movie on our own yeah and of course, but certain things, even though we maybe just saw the movie once in 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 the movie theater before we could get hold of the uh, the VHS, certain specific moments would stick out. And of course, on one hand, would you have maybe Spielberg a very secure and inventive direction that is very iconic? You know how to 
frame a shot in an iconic way, but also the music kind of helps you, okay, to imprint certain certain things. Uh, and um, so not just the, the atmosphere, but sometimes re you remember the shot. And um, and the, the kind of marriage uh, of, of uh, music and movie that uh, um, I see less and less, oh, uh, um, I, I don't want to be too disparaging. You'll song, see it in the, animation uh, still. You know, the, the, yeah, 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 in animation, because animation seems to still be needing that. And... Um, but if I think uh, sometimes, you know, you have this kind of sense of missed opportunity uh, 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 when watching. And also, for, also on TV, because for instance, one thing I noticed is that the quality maybe of the TV production is, of course, is not very high. But yet, uh, maybe because of production uh, considerations and timings, uh, sometimes I wish, ah, I wish maybe the music could have been uh, even more... Um, uh, particular, more, more, more full of character. Yeah, I mean, so, so, much, could... so much television music is like almost entirely textural and devoid of pitch material that is m not just memorable, but like makes you aware of it on any level. I mean, I, I think I think that is a very conscious decision on part of uh, filmmakers and producers to have schools that are very you know i it, it, this is a word i hate unobtrusive you know they have right. to be very very in the background not just right. you know uh, distracting you because the way nowadays people mostly uh, uh, watches uh, tv shows and uh, uh, and even movies nowadays is a very is very different mm -hmm. it's because they mostly watches in piecemeal fashion you know we watch Ten minutes now and maybe i'll stop and do another thing and then i resume playing after a while or maybe i'm doing some other things i'm watching and then i'm also texting on my on my <laughs> uh, smartphone and, and things like right, that right, right. which are probably are very far from our own generation and people who grew up you know going to movie theaters a lot and you know enjoying the, even the experience it's funny how quickly those trends change though because you can go back to a show from like i've been re-watching uh scrubs recently um which is a comedy from kind of the early 2000s and it's funny how just musically old-fashioned you know they, they have that you know whenever a tender moment this little and it just makes me think of like full house you know when they have that like tender it's moment more, yeah just or, a more innocent you know time. again where Beaver, you have the learning moment and they bring the theme in on the string slow and that's like the moment where you are meant to put all the pieces together and it's just like i can't think of anything like this in film but you used to watch the simpsons and you know oh, lisa man. would be sad and then you hear yada yada yeah <laughs> and these really kind of jazzier <laughs> chords that are unsatisfying and yeah. sad and i mean yeah. i think it's really important to say it's uh i think those of us that love a very present um uh a, a score that's doing a lot of heavy lifting in a piece uh, we can bemoan some of these trends um but it's there's almost always more going on uh, behind the scenes, and uh, just thinking about it this way, if nearly every television show you're watching has this kind of um, background score that you're talking about, uh, how easy do you think it would be to get a cue approved that isn't 
that way. If the producers of this show want their material to stand alongside the latest Netflix or whatever, it's extremely difficult. And um, I do think we're the next generation of composers are going to be men and women that have mastered the ability of evoking that background thing and finding a way to get some thematic material in there. And I think some of the best working composers do do that. I still, of course, wish that there would be more real estate given to the score, but it's, it's, it's a new challenge. And I, on optimistic days, I try to look at this period as more of a transitionary period, hopefully. Well, because the language of film visually has so changed the language of editing and everything. It's like, you can't just put an 80 score into a modern film but to me the solutions that we've arrived at don't seem like solutions at all it seems like a lot of well let's just get rid of a lot of the music and sometimes uh, i mean at least to me and when some someone tried to do that you know put a very conscious uh, 1970s 80s type of score in a current movie it feels you know most of the times it doesn't feel earnest Right. It feels like we are, you know, actively and very consciously trying to to evoke that feeling in a way that uh, is is too too much winking to the audience, if you right, know what yeah, I mean. Right. And 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 that and that probably turns as uh, something that couldn't couldn't last too much because you know when the things aren't done in the most honest or earnest way possible, probably, you know, they they don't last. <clears throat> I think it's like I. I at this point, I'd be so happy for just any moderate concession in the direction of some element of what we used to have. So that's like whether if it's a score that has some what of a memorable theme, even if the scoring approach it seems maybe by the books of the modern standards or something that maybe it doesn't have a memorable theme. Um, I feel this about a lot of younger composers now where it's like the score itself is actually kind of rich and has a quasi-symphonic approach to it that's interesting, but there's not necessarily any memorable melody that I could leave the theater humming. But I'm just happy to get at least some kind of attempt in a different sort of direction, a direction away from sort of what I consider to be the least the least amount of music it almost seems like in many cases the directive is what's the least amount of music we can have um without having no music well i think a necessary path is exposure to uh music outside of of film score and we mentioned kind of early on in the conversation how um the Superman album or the Jedi album or whatever were these portals into orchestral music, classical music. Um, I just think the reality is, is each decade, fewer and fewer people listen to that music. There's not a reference point for music that develops, that tells a story. And so if the only music in your iPhone is more record, you know, pop music, um, why, why would it develop that why why would you why would the musical language work in that way it is funny um, though because then shouldn't it have a melody shouldn't it have a really catchy melody shouldn't it be like syncopated and have some kind of groove element to it that's infectious what i find so interesting about a lot of modern film music is 
rhythmically it's so much less interesting than what john williams is doing it's it's so very square you know but i think that that that's because it's very easy uh you know to to change things on the spot actually when you have a movie that is constantly changing and sequences are juggling you know and things like that if you have that kind of modular uh, right. type and again, of this, is, this is what the samples of 10 years ago were able yeah. to execute very well. And if you needed your cues approved, you needed your demos approved, you're not going to, to spend, you know, honestly, 15 more hours to to mock up this nimble violin line that you're not right. going to get to sound very convincing. Right. Um, I'm, I'm hopeful on that front as well as the, the tools have really developed. I mean, even every, every year it's, it's amazing um, the progress that we're making there. Because what I wonder if is that the, the kind of discipline that is, uh, the, the discipline for music theoretically shouldn't have changed. The, the, the music should still have the same kind of role not not the style, but it should be, still be needed as it was right. needed 80 years ago to do something, to be an integral part of the drama. Uh, but the fact that the, the, all the, the, the way uh, a score uh, come uh, to be recorded is completely changed. You know, the, the question of approval of marking up, uh, the kind of tools that you have at your disposal, the timing, the budget restraint, I mean, a lot of things. And not that in the past, there weren't compromises that had to be made, but I think that um, it, 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 there, there were certain aspects that still required craft, and so it right. was kind of built in. Craft was built in because it was something that you couldn't do without. Uh, nowadays, maybe there are uh, the kind of, of uh, competences that are required to, to be able to, to, to record a score are uh, completely changed than what was necessary 30 years ago. And so maybe a very promising, uh, talented, uh, counterpuntal kind of composer who can write uh, fugues uh, like it's nothing, uh, who doesn't know how to um, work with with a with a producer probably wouldn't have a stand the chance to 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 offer his talents to uh, the film community, um, and um, so so I I think that there is the, the kind of skill set is is now different, and and maybe maybe it's also tougher because now nowadays you need to be uh, if you really want to excel you need to be both a great composer and arranger but also have all those other skills at your uh, disposal uh, that, uh, and also, you know, you Well, and able, I do think you know, we're solving, a, we're solving problems that had never really been adequately solved in the past. The way it worked is that the director trusted in the composer or um, in the early days of, of, say, Hollywood, the music department at a place like MGM. And so, oh, I play the thing on the piano, you've got to just trust me. So um, if someone would have asked, well, how can I really get a sense of what it is you've written before going to the scoring stage? There, there was no solution. And that's, that's, I think, a central question that's being, has been we've been wrestling with for the past couple of decades. Um, and I think it has a lot to do with the kind of scores that we have. And, um, again, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful about where, where we are sort of in this moment. And I'm also so excited that we had these three (laughs) new John Williams, star Wars scores, um, you know, in the, in the decade that just passed that, you know, if, 
if someone is never going to listen to Scarlatti or Bach, but they're going to hear March of the Resistance and they're going to be exposed to fugal writing, right. that's fantastic. Um, you know, I, I, it's that's that can, o- that can only be a good thing. That type of richness can not completely disappear from the popular culture. I mean, I think of a movie like Mary Poppins Returns that not just had incredible yeah, songs yeah. and songwriting of a bygone era, but a score that was incredibly rich. Um, and there's uh, there's no shortage, of, I think, of great scores for animated films. As long as there's some places in our popular culture where that kind of richness can exist, uh, I think the I think it's going to it's too good of a thing for it to die out entirely. But there is an interesting question when the if the the prevailing instrumental music is only for media. Um, what are kind of the long-term effects of that? Whereas in the early days of cinema, instrumental music is referencing existing concert music. Um, I think it's safe to say very few people listen to any contemporary concert music. Uh, the dominant instrumental music is for media. Um, you know, does that have the effect of sort of a Xerox of a Xerox of of a Xerox um, as we kind of move through the decades? I'm not there sure. Are, there are contemporary composers now who are being inspired by music, but that doesn't right. necessarily just regurgitate uh, the, 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 the mannerisms of film music. They just try to absorb what the 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 uh some you know what they film music had to offer and then then just re re uh, engineer that for the concert hall. Uh, sadly in this per, per historical period now the concert hall has a in certain future so let's hope that once the current situation is resolved that maybe uh, a new frog can be given to public events and that maybe we also rediscover uh, the great uh, um, uh, also the uh, can i say that the circumstantial music maybe uh, I, I still hope that maybe we will have go we will go celebrate maybe the next little uh, you know, once we will have this, you know, pandemic uh, behind our back, then maybe we will we want to celebrate also with some great music written for some special occasions. And then maybe can yeah, I think that's a great point. Yeah. It would be so inspiring to see kind of a movement towards really f- fun concert music being written, music meant to engage people and to celebrate our hopeful but inevitable return to kind of mass gatherings and congregating. I think there'd be just cause for um, something that, because I think uh, to be fair, um, for nearly a century, the kind of Western classical contemporary concert scene has almost seen, seemed to kind of delight or revel in the fact that like, it's such a small audience and almost it it's it communicates the sense that it's like well you're just not smart enough or sophisticated or learned enough to understand what it is that we're doing here um but really i mean i think the true value of any not just concert music but anything in front of an audience is to get the energy of all those people in one place and to have them become one entity that's why i so miss going to movies um in these recent 
months because there's that feeling of an audience where you're on a journey together and you kind of don't know each other you're strangers but in that in those two hours or however long you're together and you're experiencing the same thing over the stretch of time and there's something magical that happens that I think happens in any kind of live setting for music or stand-up comedy or theater or any sort of situation where there's a live audience i think it's incredibly powerful and in this sense uh, trying to you know to to sum up what what we said so far what do you think guys will be uh john williams music role in the future in this sense do you do you think it's already placed in into the canon of great orchestral music of of you know of, of our tradition I think that's a fantastic question, and I would say that's part of what's motivated us uh, making the podcast um, is I still feel that at the moment um, there's very little for those of us that love scores to view them fully as a piece of art. Um, we can be extremely thankful to Mr. Mike Mattesino and all of the wonderful um, soundtrack re-releases that we've been given in the last uh, decade or two. But really, there's nothing, uh, all, nearly nothing approaching the kind of study we could have um, over a Wagner opera or, say, Tchaikovsky's Sleeping Beauty or something like that. Now, it's possible there will be uh, those sorts of resources, that kind of study decades from now. Um, that's probably more common, actually, if we look at the history of musical analysis and, um, and study and appreciation. But uh, I think what all of us in the film music podcast space are, are trying to do in our own way is to celebrate this music and and also to sort of understand it. And I still very much want to see the medium of film score um, duly celebrated and understood as its own work of art. But it's a very difficult thing to do. For one, it's a very long piece of art. Um, in some cases, two and a half, three hours. Uh, there are some significant scores that that fall in that range. There's a lot of material, um, whether we're talking about um, viewing scores or listening to the audio. And also um, something that we've tried to focus on on our show is it does not exist in a vacuum. So it also needs to be understood in the context of the film. And as you get deeper into it, you need to understand the context of the making of the film. So it can be quite an undertaking. It's understandable that there aren't many materials when it comes to studying a, a full score, let's say. But what I hope is that the, uh, <laughs> to coin your term, that the legacy of John Williams' music um, will be this incredible treasure trove of a resource of study of um, composition and also uh, emotional musical storytelling. And I look forward uh, to the day when, you know, there can be, you know, around the globe, many John Williams courses that will be able to focus maybe on a, a single score. We'll have the score materials, we'll have the audio materials. Obviously, there are some comp some copyright hurdles that make 
a lot of that difficult currently, but that's, that's what I look forward to when I think about the future of John Williams. I also look forward to him living to the age of 224. <laughs> or no, but, but the fact that he's uh, donated all, all of his material to the Juilliard School yeah. of Music, is, I, I think it's a good sign Fantastic. To, to, you know, to probably he's kind of aware that probably his music will be studied and looked a lot and then by future music students and musical musicologists also. Well, and I think I, I hope beyond simply the study of music, I mean, I do think his name should absolutely be on the Mount Rushmore of great classical composers, but his name should be on the Mount Rushmore of film. Uh, should be I right mean, on the Hollywood sign. Yeah, I mean, I think <laughs> Actually, it can be based on, on, on your drawing, John Maria. <laughs> well, because the, the whole thing would about be great. <laughs> his number of Oscar nominations, he's always saying, oh, he's just behind... Uh, Walt Disney in terms of the number of Oscar nominations. But the interesting thing about, I think he's a figure like Disney yet, you know, Disney didn't hand animate every single cell in all of the films. He was a producer. John isn't in not to disparage anybody that I'm naming here, but he isn't like a Hans Zimmer where he has a slew of other composers and he's more like the overall spiritual leader of it. No, he writes every single note and he creates everything for all of his scores. I mean, I just don't think that that's... He is in the canon of classical composers in terms of how prolific he is. I mean, you look at how Schubert, you know, he didn't live very long, but he left so much music. I mean, had he lived as long as Beethoven, I, I can't even imagine, you know, how many symphonies we'd have. And How many of the classical composing legends conducted as much of their own music or as music right. of others. Um, I mean, there's a case for, from someone like Mahler maybe and some others, but I mean, when you look at just the length of John Williams' career, um, it's incredible. So it's not only that ink on the page. I think I remember Conrad Pope saying something about, uh, I think as Joanne Kane was preparing the final uh, sheets for the Sorcerer's Stone and the Philosopher's Stone, um, on your side of the pond, um, I think they were able to do like a note count and it was over a million notes in this, in the score. And to think that each of those were, or nearly each of those, I guess there would have been orchestral doubling and stuff, um, would have been written by the man himself. And then he would have gone into those sessions hours each day conducting it's Yeah. Well, and, and I think that a lot of the musicians I'm I'm talking to in the last uh, latest podcast, uh, right. every one of them told me about uh, how good John a conductor is. I mean, he's. I mean, every one of them, even the, the more experienced uh, musicians, told me that he's very, very one of the best conductors in the business because he always arrived very prepared. He doesn't let anything, you know, slipping under, you know, some circumstance. So. That, and that's something probably that's, that's not quite known, I think, even among fans. You know, we know he, we know he is more public uh, conductor persona, but not just the, the, the role of, of, of him as a conductor in studio. And what does right. it take to bring that music to us? It takes, as, as I think, yeah, there was a great story, I think, in a recent podcast about, oh, no, actually, trombone, that's an F natural, not an F sharp. It takes that sort of ear that... It, 
the gentleman still still has to be able to execute those cues on time and deliver them. And yeah, the, I, that's such a good it. point because I, I think yeah, conducting I, this is I'm not qualified, I think, to say this, but it, obviously if it hasn't been said enough before, conducting is so much more than waving your arms around with a baton. It really, I think, has more to do with the listening than the physical. Um, and I think, yeah, John, any footage I've ever seen of him leading a scoring stage, I mean, first of all, how efficient he is with his time and how sharp he still is to have to make these observations and then give constructive comment to the player that isn't overly verbose and doesn't waste time, but is concise and productive. And something that I imagine can only come out of incredible experience, but also his time as a player working in as a session musician on film and television scores, I think has probably tremendously helped him as a conductor. And also, I think those musicians are also very, very, you know, experienced and well-versed enough in those <laughs> uh, kind of environment that they, re they know when they have a good conductor, they have to follow versus right. maybe a not so great conductor so that they say mm, let's maybe let's follow the click and not the conductor right, right. <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> yeah we'll sort of carry him on this yeah. one yeah so guys i think that we, we really we shared such a, an incredible amount of uh, of in-depth discussion here uh and I, I really want to to thank you all for for accepting to be part of this and really absolutely I, our pleasure I, I really want to to again to to tell how much I appreciate your the work you are doing with your own underscore podcast, which is absolutely I, I recommend anyone uh, watching or listening to this to to check uh, Will and and Marty's podcast uh, as as soon as they as you can because it's really <laughs> really Thank beautiful you. fantastic analytical stuff. Well, you can go to the nuts and bolts of musical analysis, but always in a very clear and and very transparent fashion, I'd say. Well, that, thank that you. Means that, a lot. Thank that you means much, so much Patrick. coming from you. Oh, thank you so much. I mean, that's uh, it. It's so it it makes all of the the hard work worth it to know that people appreciate it. And I think the reason we do it is the same reason that I imagine you do this podcast is we feel a sense of uh, a personal responsibility because you look at the world. I mean, this great man and composers like John Williams, who that sentence is almost a misnomer because there's no one quite like John Williams, but to think he's still alive and that his legacy is possibly uncertain. And so I think all of us, I imagine, feel a sense of responsibility to do our part to ensure that um, he stands, you know, on the the peak, on the mountain face, you know, up with all of the other great classical composers um, and do our small part. And I would apologize for the length of our conversation, except uh, this seems to always happen whenever lovers of film music are able yes, to connect. No. Um, we could probably talk for a few more hours. If it, I apologize. It's so late over there where you, where you guys are. So. Well, it's fine. Yeah, it's, yeah, well, I, 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 it was absolutely a, a treat to, to, to be able with, to, to share with you and to pickle uh, your brain about this. Uh, I, I'm sorry that they couldn't pick your brain, uh, both of you, about uh, 
John Williams also the songwriter because I know that both of you are uh, fond of, of, of songwriting and you try it uh, your hand you know uh, extensively into songwriting and there's well, you know, all, same all, time all, next another week. aspect Let's of John do Williams. this again <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> absolutely <laughs> because uh, there were a lot of things I would have liked to, to touch upon um, but um, you know we, we we've been rammed for almost two hours now and I uh, I, I think it's it's already enough, uh, if we can say so. I mean, I, I could go on, but uh, maybe maybe for the sake of our audience's uh, patience, we will not stretch uh, the time too much. <laughs> Let's make it a That's promise then to maybe to to do another round in the future, so we can maybe pick out some other interesting aspects of, of John's music, but also talking about your own music, uh, your work as composers, you know. <laughs> and that would be absolutely nice to, to for me to talk with you, with all of you. So, Will, uh, Marty, Gianmaria, thank you all for being part of this video feature of The Legacy of John Williams and hope to speak with all of you very, very soon. Thank you, Maurizio. All the best. Okay, pleasure.